0: Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Mountains, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. On this show, we've talked a good bit about school choice in the past, but it's not often that we talk about intra-district choice, that is, choice between schools in the same district. Well, we're going to tackle that today. Starting in 2012, Los Angeles' Zones of Choice program created small local markets with high schools in neighborhoods throughout the city of Los Angeles, but it left traditional attendance zone boundaries throughout the rest of the district intact. In application, this means that 30 to 40% of LAUSD is a zone of choice, as opposed to the program being district or statewide. The success of this innovative program in the nation's second largest school district has garnered some attention, but it's been the subject of a new paper Titled, The Impact of Neighborhood School Choice Evidence from Los Angeles Zone of Choice Program. Here to discuss that paper is the author, Christopher Campos, as well as a friend of the show, former superintendent of LAUSD schools, John Deasy. Chris is a labor economist focusing on the economics of education, and he's currently an industrial relations section fellow at Princeton University, and soon, will be an assistant professor at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. John Deasy has a long career in public education, serving over the years as superintendent of Prince George's County Public Schools, Stockton Unified, and most relevant to today's episode, the Los Angeles Unified School District. Chris, John, welcome to The Report Card.
1: Thanks, glad to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: So let's start with the basics. John, you were in superintendent in LAUSD, when this program was in its infancy. Can you give me some of the background of what the Zones of Joyce program is and what it sought to address?
1: First, I got to begin by uh, shouting out Chris. Birmingham High School grad, LAUSD, takes this and, uh, and goes big. Um, so first of all, congratulations and congratulations on the appointment at uh, the B School, University of Chicago. Um, what? we attempted to do in policy was to take one small example that had existed for some time and move that example to scale across the district as people probably realize it's an enormous geography an enormous district and the opportunity was to give students in geographical zones as much freedom and their parents and guardians as choice to where they wanted to go to school A lot of things converged that made this uh, particularly possible at the time. We will talk about those a little bit later in the show. But the fundamental idea was to increase options and dramatically increase uh, outcomes in terms of student achievement, opportunity past high school graduation, um, and closing gaps in achievement.
0: And, And John, when you set this up, what were your expectations as far as how many students would participate and how did that shake out?
1: So I obviously have read the report with great scrutiny. Um, I did not expect the degree of uptake. I I thought parents and students would pretty much stay in the schools that they were assigned to. Um, We were very, very pleased with that. Um, A lot of effort went into providing parents with the information to make those choices. That was a a whole portion of, of the work. And we expected, you know, some increases. I mean, there were many other, quote, improvement and reform initiatives taking place at the same time. We expected some increases. The bottom line results were incredibly affirming and, um, and were actually a pleasant surprise.
0: So Chris, before we get into your paper, how you sort of evaluated these programs, uh, what did you see in terms of sort of uptake and participation? I mean, let's answer some simple questions here. Uh, how many LAUSD students were participating in this form of choice?
2: Right, so this program is somewhat distinct from other choice policies in that it's neighborhood based. So kind of where you live determines the set of options you have. And with each zone of choice, you have your traditional neighborhood school that you would have been assigned to for the most part, but now you have several nearby options. In terms of participation, um, it depends on how you define the population of students. So conditional on you being in eighth grade in LAUSD, the Zones of Choice office is pretty effective in collecting applications from everyone who's enrolled in an LAUSD school. Now there's a subset of students that LAUSD cannot track because they're enrolled in charter programs or other private programs or whatever non LAUSD options are available nearby that we can't adequately track. But conditional on you being in eighth grade, we get an application from you. Roughly 10% of those students tend to disappear in ninth grade and go elsewhere, that's not LAUSD. So 90% of the population that's eligible in eighth grade shows up to a zone of choice program in the subsequent year.
0: All right. let me ask you this, Chris. I, I know a lot of folks who will say, oh, yeah, it's a very simple calculation. Uh, anybody choosing a school, if you're restricted to public schools, you know, you don't have much choice except your uh, traditional public school. Certainly in a place like LAUSD, they just don't have choice. But what you're telling me is for a while now, that's simply not been the case.
2: Yeah, that's correct. So this program kind of was expanded and what well, was initiated in 2012, and it's still in existence. It's actually expanding into other neighborhoods and expanding into the middle school and elementary school setting. Uh, so, so the availability of choice has existed in LAUSD, and on top of that, the magnet program has been layered on top of LAUSD since before the zones of choice policy as well. So, there's been a lot of choice in LA. All right,
0: so Chris, your your paper, which is called "The Impact of Neighborhood School Choice: Evidence from Los Angeles's Zone of of Choice Program," and it's a behemoth i mean it it weighs in at like 99 pages i think and uh it's not for the faint of heart so we're gonna try and translate uh this to you know uh, uh, us mere mortals but first of all can you just give us a sense of what kind of data did you have to collect and get together to answer the kinds of questions the tricky questions that you set out to evaluate uh zones of choice on
2: right so i think the 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 core of the analysis relies on data that is easily accessible uh, through kind of standard LAUSD research protocols, which is an administrative student level data set. And that's information on every student enrolled in LAUSD, their demographic characteristics and educational outcomes such as their achievement. What was key for this study was being able to link that information to data that the zones of choice office collects in particular and that includes the applications they submit to the program where in those applications they rank every program that they're eligible to apply to in their zone of choice and then we also have information about the assignments made within each zone of choice and the random lottery numbers assigned to each student that allows us to kind of set up this lottery analysis to study particular effects of the program within each zone of choice so it was that linkage between Readily available LAUSD data with zones of choice uh, specific data that allowed this project to be possible.
0: So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've sort of got where you started, where you ended up, the preferences that you had, and some lottery variation that you could look at that would be random. Exactly. Exactly. All right, that's correct. Now, Chris, this is a lot of this is a lot of work to go over. So, before we get into the paper, just. Why do you want to go after Zones of Choice? I mean, what made you interested in this particular topic?
2: So as John kind of alluded to earlier, I came up in the LAUSD system. I was an LAUSD student from kind of beginning to end, so my whole entire K-12 experience. I knew about the Zones of Choice policy, um, and to me it was somewhat surprising. It had not received as much attention as I thought it should have. So if you Google Zones of Choice it takes you a while to find articles about it. And articles that mention it just mention it in passing. So it's not even the focus of the article. And I thought you had this really neat natural experiment where nearly half the district or 40% of the district has choice introduced and the rest does not. And so to me, that seemed like an ideal treatment control type setup to study the impacts of different questions that people are really interested in.
0: Then on your own home turf, no less. So that's, uh, that's kind of nice. John, let me ask you a little bit about this. We talked about the politics of choice in some places. It's flat out, bare knuckle, polar opposition. You know, it's real tough. Most of the time, those uh, things are sort of cross sector, maybe charter versus traditional public schools or so forth. How did the politics of this sort of unfold? Right. I mean, what did it sort of fly under the radar? Was this a big fight that we've just forgotten about? Uh, How does that play into this?
1: Well, it's LAUSD, so there were no politics involved at all (laughs) um, in terms of this program. Um, Actually, um, joking aside, every one of the points you just made had um, political opportunity, political friction um, along the line. So we had a growing um, charter sector. Um, You know, Stanford Center has ample research on the quality of charter schools and the outcomes. So that was taking place during that period of time. We um, also had the opportunity to think about this at scale where we had a conversion of two items which are a particular note. We were at this point in time, almost but not fully done with the massive school building program. So um, I think unlike other areas that might have attempted um, a local interdistrict zone of choice, students had many options. Because there were so many new schools that have been built, many of those schools came about through the public school choice program, which talked about who could run the new school once it was built and how those decisions were made. And there was a very, very wide array of programs and opportunities. So, from my perspective, it was highly legitimate choice. Um, and we worked really hard both on information, because, you know, Uh, The underground currency um, in any school district is who knows what and information we want to make sure that parents and students had absolutely like a maximum exposure to this so if they chose not to participate it wasn't because they didn't know how to participate it's because they just chose not to participate. Second, transportation wasn't a barrier because they were still zonal again another bane of some zone issues around that. And one of the things that I thought philosophically, um, which, which uh, you alluded to at the beginning uh, raised to the surface is just because a brand new school was built next to my block, why does a student not have the right to that who didn't just physically live there? And so we wanted to make sure that students had, had wide options. When you got to the charter traditional public school, those politics um, in some cases were national battles um, fought out in LAUSD. This was very much an internal battle. So it was neighborhood groups. It was local um, advocacy organizations that, you know, basically uh, strongly petitioned board members. Board members at that time had deep, deep affiliation because they're geographically based board members. They're not at large. Um, And so board members became very strong advocates um, for opportunities in their, quote, zones. Um, And, early results, uh, I shouldn't say results, excuse me, early feedback was that the advocacy groups, student and parents and board members felt this was quote, a winning model. Um, and so, you know, you worry about choices, winners and losers on the dollar amount, A student leaves and goes to a charter, um, there's a quote, loss of funding that goes to that student. That wasn't part of the conversation. This was much more about the personnel assigned to schools. So, if you had increases in student population, you had increases in personnel, and if you then they if they left the school, you had decreases. That was the greatest uh, point of um, conflict.
0: So, plenty of room for conflict, but just compared to the sort of much more fuel-laden conflicts elsewhere. is is relatively lower. So, Chris, we're going to get into your paper now, but first, I want to set up the idea of how we should think about this and, and, and what ideas you brought up to say, all right, why might these zones of choice change student outcomes, right? Like some of this is competition. Some of this might be match. What were you looking to determine when you say, hey, let's evaluate how these things played out after we can look at the the choices students made, and then what happened afterwards?
2: Right, so I think going into the project, I just was thinking about what are some of the underlying assumptions that need to be true for a school choice reform to have a successful outcome? And a lot of that ultimately depends on the uh, the choices parents are making, right? So if parents are rewarding effective schools, and we can talk about what effective means in a minute, then that would put pressure on schools to improve in terms of something they value. And so that was kind of the first thing I was interested in looking at. And then if that is true, then you can study the types of outcomes that this type of reform could improve. And as you mentioned, it could kind of be through competition. It could be through parents making more effective decisions in terms of choosing schools that best suit their children's needs or it could be something just about reallocation, reallocating students from less effective to more effective schools. So there's three potential mechanisms at play. And so I was interested in actually isolating the independent effect of each potential mechanism going into the project. If we were able to find that parents did indeed seem to value effective schools within these zones of choice, which is is, is something that I found in the paper as well. So that's how I was thinking about it going into the paper. I'm sorry, John, were you gonna jump in?
1: No, I was gonna say, I, I think we were thinking about Every one of those, as well, in the construction of it. So that's really interesting to hear that as you take a look at the end of the research.
0: All right. So Chris, let's jump into the analyses a little bit now. Let me just tell listeners: if you're a big fan of uh, long equations and robustness checks and appendices, you can go see the paper. We're not going to go over those now because there's there's a lot of detail here. If you want to dig in, that's great. Go for it. But In in layman's terms, Chris, how did you uh, approach this uh, analysis?
2: Right. So I think the concept of, of the policy is, I think, pretty intuitive. So you have a subset of neighborhoods in LAUSD that are now a zone of choice, and the rest are not. So you can think about this kind of as a treatment and control group. And then the idea then is to compare the trajectories of the treatment group, the zones of choice neighborhoods and the students enrolled in those neighborhoods, to the trajectories of students that are not enrolled in those neighborhoods right? And so the differences in trajectories are going to tell you something about the relative impact of the reform before and after it was introduced. And so that's the intuition. And, and I, I hope that was intuitive. I, I can try and, again, but that, that's kind of the idea behind the analysis and um, the intuition.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's sensible. But a lot of times what we would think is, well, you know, here's a school and the different school is the intervention. So the kids who went to the different school or whatever that intervention is, they might have gotten a benefit and the kids who didn't participate in it, well, they might not have gotten it, but this is a little different angle, right? Because we're looking at zones of choice on both sides of those decisions. And then you're separating what happens to both sides of the zone of choice kids from the kids, not in a zone of choice. Am I getting that right?
2: Right, right. So there's, so yeah, let's break this up into the potential channels or potential benefits. So on the one hand, there's an access channel, right? So Uh, You introduce choice. Now, the idea behind that is you're giving students that are trapped in struggling schools access to more effective schools. So if you could just reallocate those students from the bad schools to the better schools, and that's a way to improve their outcomes. But as you point out, some students are left behind. And so it's ambiguous what happens to those students. And so to study that, we use kind of the lottery. And we can return to that in a few minutes. What I was talking about a few minutes ago or a few moments ago is that you have another experiment layered on top of this which is just the aggregate effect of school choice. You have one sector of the district, which is exposed to choice and competition, and another is. And so is the trajectory of their productivity different before and after the reform? And that's kind of what I was alluding to is is kind of the first uh, kind of way to evaluate the policy. But then you also have a lottery kind of evaluation to look at within zones, what's happening to the students who are gaining access to the more effective schools and what's happening to the students who are not. So those are kind of the, those are the two distinct research designs that pick up something different. Um, and, and we do both of them. And, and overall, we find that most of the program's benefits are due to the aggregate effects. So it was something about the Zones of Choice uh, program that kind of introduced, introduced kind of substantial gains in school productivity that subsequently affected student outcomes, uh, leading to improvements in achievements and college enrollment rates. Um, and when we zoom in, within zones using the lottery evidence, we do find that students and families were had a strong preference to, for going to kind of popular schools, and they did tend to benefit from going to those schools. But those gains tended to be eliminated as of the most recent year that we have data for, which is 2019, because what happened within zones is that the initially less effective schools, they improved their so-called value add, in a way that essentially eliminated the premium that students would get from enrolling in those popular schools. So essentially, before the policy is introduced, there are quality differences across schools within zones. As of 2019, those quality differences are no longer there on average. So within zones, there was a convergence in school quality, but also when you look at zones of choice schools and non-zones of choice schools, there's also a convergence in quality there. Did, Did that make sense? So there's all around gains coming from different channels.
0: It does, but we've got two separate points of action going here. So let's take um, them, let's break exactly what you said down, but let's just break it one at a time. When you looked at the lottery results, this compares kids who wanted to go to a school and got in and what their outcomes were compared to kids who also wanted to go to those sets of schools, but didn't get in. So this is sort of the kids who got into the school versus those that didn't, and they're separated not because they didn't want to but because they didn't win the lottery. So what were the kinds of outcome differences that we saw across that initially in in, in these initial
2: years? And and how big were they? Right, so for the kids who were fortunate to get in through the lottery, their achievement on English and language arts and math was roughly 10 to believe, 15% of a standard deviation larger than the kids who just didn't happen to get in. Um, but that was only there for the first few cohorts of the program. Um, so as we move forward in time, kind of the benefit of getting into those popular schools is going away. And what we find is that it's not that, um, it, what's basically happening is that the quality of the schools that were the less popular schools seem to have improved. And as the quality catches up, that premium of getting lotteried into the popular school goes away. And so that's why, as of 2019, we're not finding differences in achievement from winning the lottery. But that's because there was this overall aggregate effect that lifted the quality of schools that were initially less popular and made them catch up to initially popular schools. Um, so that's what I was referring to as the within kind of effect.
0: Absolutely. So the schools that essentially might have been thought of as you know sending schools are not the places that people were as much trying to get into. They improved their quality such that the entire set of zone schools got better by 2019 you're not seeing a marginal benefit to that choice because the old sending schools got better
2: exactly exactly exactly
0: okay and when you say uh you know 10 to 15 percent of a standard deviation i mean that's nothing to sneeze at when you talk about an entire population of students these are these are measurable increases right
2: yeah, definitely. So in the education space, those are pretty sizable impacts. Um, so um, yeah, they're pretty large. Um, so just to give people a sense of what that is within LUSD and the sample that we're talking about, among all zones of choice students, as they enter high school, uh, zones of choice students are performing roughly 20% of a standard deviation, more poorly on, Engl- on, on math scores and English and language arts scores. So it's telling you that kind of, one, getting lotteryed into a most preferred school seems to boost your achievement by a lot relative to that incoming achievement gap. But there's going to be another layer to the story, which is the aggregate effect that also seems to be elevating students' impacts.
0: Now, John, I want to get you here in a minute, so, so, so don't let this go cold. But this, this second question is, all right, well, what if we compared the zone schools generally to the schools that weren't really in the zones at all? This is this sort of second comparison. And... How, how would you summarize the differences between those, you know, from sort of the 2012 time to the 2019 period?
2: Right, so we find that the zones of choice seem to have caused an improvement in student achievement, roughly 17% of a standard deviation um, between the year before the policy was implemented to 2019. So it's kind of the relative change of ZOZ student achievement uh, compared to non-zones of choice student achievement. So it's kind of like the between-sector comparisons. And,
0: and again, let me let me just pick my jaw off the floor, because
1: okay, those yeah, are, right? Point. Like, you only dream, in my opinion, as a layman, of results like that. Um, I, I could go on at length about the methodology, but I do want to say, um, as an informed layman, having deeply read this and digested it, I, I'm willing to say the results are unassailable. And so it only puts an exclamation mark on something that is, in my words, dramatic for young people.
0: And it it covers a wide swath of the second largest district in the nation. So, you know, a lot of times you can get to these kind of size differences with a, you know, sort of boutique program that serves a couple hundred students. But, you know, we're talking about major changes at scale over a long period of time. Um,
2: and I do want one thing that, um, for the people who don't, I think it's a fair criticism when some people point out that it's not all about test scores. So we also looked at a different outcome, which is college enrollment. And we find similar sizable kind of improvements in college enrollment among zones of choice students relative to non-zones of choice students. So there's a win in terms of a outcome that people seem to care about some more, I think as well.
0: So Chris, I'm interested in how the demand side of this equation, plays into the findings that you came up with?
2: Yeah, thanks for asking that question. So that's a very important question. So kind of the potential success of any school choice policy ultimately depends on the choices parents make. So if parents really value high quality academic programs, then all schools are gonna be incentivized to have a high quality um, uh, academic program. If they value kind of sports programs, then schools are gonna have an incentive to have high quality sports programs. And so what we find in the zones of choice setting is that parents um, seem to be placing substantial weight on the academic quality of schools. And that provides schools within each zone of choice the incentive to improve their academic, academic quality as captured through factors that affect student learning. And so this is a somewhat novel finding in that in other settings, people tend to find that parents place more weight on school's peer characteristics and not factors that contribute to student learning. And I think there's one kind of explanation that comes to mind that's uh, content, uh, specific to this context, which is how segregated these, these uh, zones of choice really are. So in a place like New York, for example, where someone faces a similar decision as their kids are enrolling in high school, you know, they could have potentially 15 schools to choose from. And two or three of those schools are gonna be where all the rich kids go to. And so some families are gonna misperceive those to be the high quality programs and really rank those schools highly. Um, in the zones of choice setting, you don't have that sorting mechanism because you know, essentially all kids are the same race, and all kids are the same socioeconomic status. And so parents are selecting schools based on other characteristics that are more correlated with factors that uh, contribute to student learning. And so that's what's providing schools the incentives to improve their academic quality and is a key important factor, I think, explaining a lot of the results that we find in the paper.
0: And so this is pretty important because if the basis of parent choices were something else, if they were motivated by, well, I'm a minority parent and I want my kids to go to the white school, then we may find something other than academics driving it. And then the results may not be that productive academically. And if that's the case, that also speaks to the fact that parent decision-making in this zones of choice program is part of the production function that led to better student outcomes. Is that right?
2: Absolutely, yeah, totally. Thanks for summarizing that. That was was good.
0: So Chris, you talk about uh, competition. I'm gonna ask you to try and isolate your forms of competition in a minute. But John, when you hear about this, and I know I'm asking you a little bit to cheat because you've read the paper, but when you think about this, you think about the theory of action that went into the zones of choice program what kind of competitive effects or just sort of, you know, sort of district wide or, or, or large sector uh, effects would you have expected from this uh, policy
1: change? So we very much moved into this uh, aligned with the quote theory of action that was studied. So we wanted an all boats to rise effect. We did, we did not choose a boutique effect. We did not choose limited um, access effect. And we, we didn't choose like targeted demographics, although generally most kids at LAUC are similarly um, have, have, have struggled. So when we, and the other things that were happy at the time was it was, a, it was an enormous initiative around the improvement of teaching and learning. It was an enormous initiative around the improvement of, of leadership. Um, those took place across everything. So in other words, it wasn't only in the zones of choice. So from day one, this was very much a model of a, of, a, uh, of an all boats rising. What was surprising to me was that the competition conversations, so this is principle to principle, quite frankly, and geography to geography did not lead to acrimony. It actually led to collective learning. Um, and so the notion that if, I actually want to be a school that people want to come to. Those improvements needed to take place. If I was a school where people wanted to go to, I needed to maintain those opportunities. And it was deeply synergistic rather than acrimonious. And that's what we were, that's what we were planned on doing. So most of the research we did before this um, did not attempt this quote at scale.
0: And and it's interesting because I Chris, I don't think your paper sort of evaluates this. But, John, you're talking about a bunch of other initiatives aimed at improving schools across the, across the district, right? So these oh, weren't yeah. small things. So there's a lot of other stuff going on here. Although it does appear that if these zones of choice are bringing that competition to it, um, and you also have these other mechanisms that may improve school operations, and leadership, and so forth, it does seem like the zones of choice schools might have been better able to take advantage of those other options than the schools outside of zones of choice, does that sound yeah, it, rational?
1: It, it, very much so. To say it another way is all those other things were necessary, but they weren't sufficient for the kind of gains that we we saw and continue to see. Um, and that um, I think that effect was very much on. Uh, there's one other one the, the dual effect that that Chris talks about, and then I think the I, I think not studied was the quote collegial effect of increased information and collaboration across regions and leaders in regions. Um, And that's what I think uh, resulted in us seeing those types of gains.
0: Now, Chris, before we go on to the competitive effects that you tried to tease out, one more question that I know a ton of the listeners are going to want to know. Sure, you got improvements. Was it all for the well-to-do kids? Was it all for the kids who are already advantaged? Was it for the kids who are facing the most challenges? What did you find on on that sort of relative distribution of benefit scale?
2: Right. So if we look at kind of the types of kids who benefited most from the program in terms of their incoming achievement or where they stood in the incoming achievement distribution, we find that the program seemed to have lifted the achievement of students who would have otherwise performed poorly and kind of were in the bottom half of the distribution. And we don't find much going on with the kids at the very top. So, it seems like all of these gains came from kids who would have done very poorly, but it didn't come at the expense from really high achieving students. And if we look at college enrollment effects, we see that it seemed to have lifted all types of students into college. And the types of the colleges they're enrolling in are the California State University system. Um, and, and so um, that makes sense given that the zones of choice kids tend to come from relatively disadvantaged neighborhoods in LAUSD.
0: So, the bulk of the benefits went to kids who would have otherwise. We'd predict not do as well. All right, so Chris. Oh, can you? Can
1: I? Can I just add a, a colon and then finish that sentence? Do it. But not at the expense of young people who are already doing well. I think I can't underestimate. Excuse me. I can't underscore enough um, that that is actually a significant finding.
0: Certainly, especially when we talk about the politics that we mentioned earlier. Right. Yeah. That that's going to weigh in if uh, if there was some sort of obvious trade-offs that had to be made. So Chris, a little bit more about this competition. How did you isolate the competition uh, effects from, say, what we might call student match effects or um, the, the, the other avenues that you evaluated?
1: Can I make a comment before you start? I, I, I just want, I don't want to be the moderator, but I found this to be one of the most fascinating parts of this study, is this question.
0: So my question is seconded by former superintendent, John <laughs> You're set to go, Chris.
2: Great, so I think what was really important in this setting was that we had information about the choices parents were making. So their preferences, like what were they ranking? And so ideally we would wanna have a sense of what parents' choices would have been in the absence of the program or before the policy comes into place. We don't have that. So we can look at the first cohort of parents. And then we can get a sense using that information what are really popular schools and what are schools that are less popular, right? And so if I my neighborhood school is a relatively popular school, then that school is gonna have less pressure to improve because there are gonna, they're gonna absorb a lot of kids uh, once the policy kind of gets introduced and there's open enrollment within the zone of choice. In contrast, the school that is relatively less popular has the most pressure to improve. And so I'm not gonna go into the specifics, but we can build a statistic that captures these differences uh, within zones across schools. And then we can look at kind of differences in the effects based on those differences at the onset of the program. So the question is, were the schools with the most pressure to improve based on their relative popularity at the start of the program, did they improve by more or, or not? And so we find that most of the gains tend to be concentrated among schools that had the most pressure to improve based on their relative popularity at the start of the program. So that's kind of the intuition without going into any details. Uh, And I think it's a pretty intuitive way to think about competition in in particular in this setting as well. That was, the data was was nice uh, and appropriate for studying that in this manner.
0: So John, how satisfying is that from a superintendent's lens? Well,
1: it's incredibly satisfying. I mean, it makes all of the other joys of being a superintendent in LAUSD pale in comparison. It's incredibly, I I actually want to, Go out on a bit of a limb. I was always thrilled that we saw substantial and, in some cases, statistically dramatically significant increases in student achievement as measured by test scores. But college attainment um, was particularly satisfying because we understand the lifelong effects of that, both economically, socially, etc. So that that was that was particularly um, particularly great to to, to see. I, I want to add something to what Chris said about. The issue of competition which probably didn't make it in the paper because you would have had to have done more of a qualitative interview piece to principals at the same time as principals of schools and staff of schools who were quote losing young people to a choice um, and the pressure was to improve there we can imagine what that pressure felt like there was another pressure that was also taking place at the same time and that is schools that were um, ones that were high Um, on the choice list, students coming in. But everybody understood that the majority of students coming in were students who previously were not doing very well. And there was a real worry that that would actually have a negative effect on the improvement of the school. So that we were wholesale accepting students who were struggling before, you know, street logic would say that's probably not going to bode well for the school. It didn't happen on either case. Now, some of that's to the model, some of it's to the work we did, but a lot of it, quite frankly, was to the fact that we had a core of leaders who didn't want winners and losers in either kids or adults. And I think that um, was another piece that I was very proud of.
0: So Chris, really, it's it's an extremely interesting paper. And I'll tell you, you get into it and at page 30, you're saying, man, when is this thing going to wrap up? And you <laughs> jump into a whole nother section. But nonetheless, uh, for you stalwarts out there, we'll link to it in the show notes. But Chris, there's some limitations to this. We should always talk about the limitations to these papers so we don't push it too far. What are some
2: limitations that you want to make people aware of? So I think one of the biggest caveats in this setting is kind of how segregated these schools are. And I think that is somewhat a consequence of the type of policy that is being implemented. So you're you're talking about zones of choice policy. You're essentially talking about changing attendance zone boundaries. If you go into rich neighborhoods, you're going to get a lot of parents angry at town hall saying you're not going to change my attendance zone boundaries. So you'll see that once you like overlay or you look at where these zones are, they're mostly in relatively disadvantaged parts of LAUSD, which happen to be really segregated schools. And so there's kind of a growing body of evidence suggesting that kind of ending your K through 12 experience in a segregated school could potentially affect your outcomes in the long run. So that's still an open question. What will dominate will kind of the relative improvement of kind of, that you got through the program without outweigh kind of the cost of being in really segregated schools. And another thing is just the external validity. So there's a lot of quirks about LAUSD that don't generalize to other settings. So roughly three quarters of the district is classified as Hispanic. Roughly 90% of kids are classified as poor. I mean, there's some similarities to other large urban districts, but it's unclear whether there are too many similarities. So this may not work in other settings. Um, and, and, And so I think those are two big caveats for sure.
0: John, you can you can come into some of these limitations, right? Maybe not on the methods, but on sort of what do we apply here? One of the questions that I wonder is the zones of choice, they weren't everywhere. They didn't cover the earth. Is it that the zones where they were implemented, picked up the low hanging fruit? Or was it actually that there may be other zones that if you could get the political arrangement rights, there may be even, you know, richer gains to be had?
1: Uh, Yes, and there's also a possibility that not being designated a zone had its own pressure to improve so that we wouldn't go through the student transfer opportunities. Uh, So if you weren't in a zone and you didn't want to be designated a zone, you also had to work real hard at that as well. I I think there are a, a continued list of unique situations in LAUSD. One is it's not a city, even though people think it is Los Angeles. It's actually 27 separate cities, um, including Los Angeles. And so you had 27 separate mayors weighing in on all things um, involved in this. Um, You had, as we know, its leadership structure is well-documented and discussed, um, meaning that you need about $2 million to run an average school board race, um, which is not little change around that. And then maybe the third thing is, is... worth saying is that there are an incredibly well developed set of CBO community-based organizations, and every one of them had a strong advocacy effect. I am not sure I or any superintendent could have moved the ball forward in a community without that infrastructure of community-based organizations. I, I, I think that, that enough can't be said about how important that was. And lastly, while LA struggles, there is no massive area of high wealth. So, like in DC, you, you know, you go west of the park. I mean, like, like they, you don't have that kind of you have pockets of that. And so, we didn't really have to face that issue of resistance so much as it could have happened in other places, which could have derailed the setting. I mean, the, I, I think of, you know, we all know districts around the country, a lot of them, I, I've thought about could it be applied? I There are pieces of this which can be absolutely applied. But I think the caveats that Chris identified are worthy of serious reading if you're gonna take this up as a policy structure in another place.
0: So, with our zones of choice in LA now, right? I mean, this is, you know, it's one study, it's not uh, gonna, gonna change the earth, but it's it's pretty potent stuff.
1: Um, oh, it should our, change uh, the earth. Well, <laughs> change outcomes. Yeah. For young people in that kind of orders of magnitude, who otherwise would not have had those types of gains and or attainments, is worthy of serious consideration.
0: Well, well, certainly, John. But you can say that. But Chris isn't allowed to because he's an <laughs> academic. Nonetheless, <laughs> the question is, um, is are, have zones of choice expanded in recent years? Is, is this on a growth trajectory? Has it reached an upper limit? Um, in, in L.A., <laughs> is this on the move?
2: Um, It's unclear. I feel like any time I get some new information about this, it's going in the opposite direction from the previous time. So what has happened since the study is Zones of Choice has expanded into other neighborhoods in the San Fernando Valley. Um, It has expanded into middle schools and it recently expanded into one elementary zone, all in the South Gate area of LA County. So it is growing, but I don't know what the long-term plans are with this program. I mean, the the office is there. There's a group of administrators whose sole purpose is to run the program, and they're not going anywhere. Um, so in that sense, it seems to be carrying forward into the future, but I'm also not sure if there's any future expansions planned or anything like that.
0: And, and broader than LA, Chris, what do you know about the interest in other areas to look specifically at these sort of interest district choice programs? sort of along these same lines, which are, it seems fairly unique to me. I don't know the literature well, but it seems fairly unique. Is there growing interest in this or is it
2: slow going? Well, I think like the way I would frame this is there has been a substantial rise in using centralized assignment systems to allocate students to schools. So you can look at New York City, look at a place like Denver, Chicago, where people have, you could say, somewhat universal choice. You can apply to all schools in the district, for the most part, subject to some limitations. Um, And so in that sense, these types of choice policies are expanding, but unlike LA, they don't have a within district control group to compare students before and after that is introduced. So in that sense, this paper also speaks to that literature in that we have a subset of neighborhoods in L.A. that are using centralized assignment to allocate students to schools, and we're studying the before and after effects as well. So in that sense, it is connected to these other types of growing reforms, Um, so. All
0: right, so John, I'm gonna take us out here with a final question. Um, Again, super interesting paper worth digging into. John, to the simplest takeaway that you, you can give to other leaders around the nation, What should they be learning from the Zones of Choice program and particularly um, what the findings of Chris's uh, paper have revealed?
1: Uh, I think we can learn a couple of things. One is that whole scale improvement or significant improvement at scale across uh, a district, but particularly a larger urban district, is possible and doable. Two is that if the program implementation that is one is choosing is done well, I, I've learned that the one-off and boutique approach to use your language is unlikely to get those types of gains, no matter how shiny and and, and amazing that is. And then the third piece I would say, which was touched on briefly in the paper, I, I think it could be a paper unto itself, was the notion of what it meant for a family or a student to believe they were part of a community that they wanted to join um, and that effect. Um, And so on average, a parent or a student would have between four and seven evening events with leaders of the district of a school that they were about to choose to. And so when the young person went there, it was a very, very, very different feeling of, this is not my school, but I actually belong here. Um, I've already built a relationship my parents already have knowledge, currency and confidence around that. I think that component to the effort in having students understand what right they had and building a relationship before they went there also had a, had a dramatic effect, um, I think, on the outcomes as well. And last point, you know it does take courage to do right by young people. Um, and when you see something like this down the road uh, makes it very, very worthwhile although not always at the moment when you're in the board meetings and the public is debating a policy issue or you're with your principals and they're worried about that. A lot of people, a lot of people have much to be proud of.
0: Chris, same question to you. What do you want districts across the nation, leaders to, to learn from this work?
2: I think one point I really, I always try to make, and it's kind of building on John's point, is that it's not just about introducing choice and competition, the institutional support matters a lot. And so in the zones of choice setting, you have a group of administrators whose sole purpose throughout the years is to run the program, they're out talking to families, communicating with schools. And without it, that institutional support, it's really hard to believe some of the effects we find in this paper really materialize. So I think they serve as key intermediaries and very important. So kind of really emphasizing the institutional support aspect of kind of broader school choice policies. And yeah. Uh, that'd be kind of one thing I'd really want to close off with. And shout out to all the Zones of Choice staff. They're all great.
0: Chris Campos, this is great early work and an early career. Can't wait to see what you come up with next. And uh, John, thanks as always for coming great. on the report card.
1: Glad to. Great. Thanks, Chris, for the work on behalf of the kids of LAUSD. Thanks,
2: John. Nice meeting you as well.
1: Likewise.
2: Thanks
0: for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests. Christopher Campos, and John Deasy. We'll include a link to Chris's paper on the LAUSD Zones of Choice program in the show notes. I wanna thank our producer, Wesley Armstrong, who makes this podcast possible. And for you, I'd like to remind you that you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. And when you're there, take two minutes to leave us a review so other folks can find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's all for this episode.
1: I'm Nat Malkus.